Thanks for tuning in. My name's Andre Servin, and you're listening to Off the Roost Podcast, brought to you by Off the Roost Custom Calls, turkey calls for the serious hunter. Join me and my co-host, Paul Murdahl, as we delve into the world of the wild turkey, covering everything from calling tips and tactics and hunting strategies to the latest equipment available, featuring interviews from special guests and custom call giveaways. We'll do our best to keep you up to date on this obsession we call turkey hunting. We appreciate you joining us. Now let's get on with the show. Hey there, welcome back everybody. You're listening to episode five of Off the Roost Podcast. And I am here with my uh, buddy Paul. And uh, we are here to discuss uh, our our next... Uh, well, Paul, how, how has your week been? It's been, um, it's been cold. Cold, it, cold, cold. It has, cold. yeah. I've been... Um, I, don't, I don't know if you know, but I've been cutting up a lot of ash at a buddy's from works house stacking it up the lumber and I, I pretty much i got i got quite a bit of that and i'm looking to get some calls out of it but when i'm doing that you know i've been trying chomping at the bit to try to get some walnut logs and i've been eyeing up my tree in my backyard here for the longest time thinking i was gonna have to cut it down but when i was out at this guy's place the other day he just come up out of nowhere and drove in the driveway and said yeah and started talking he says you know i got this walnut tree that i just cut down and I didn't quite think nothing of it, and I was kind of rushed because it was getting late in the day. So I was busy, and he, and he kind of, we talked a little bit. I got his name and stuff like that, and I asked him, you know, what he was looking to do with it, if he wanted to sell it or something. And he's like, I don't know. I was just kind of thinking of maybe getting some boards out of it or something. And we kind of made a deal where I cut him two mantle pieces out of his, out of his, out of his logs, and he loaded him up in his tractor and he drove them all the way down to my to my sawmill and I, I cut his mantle pieces for him and then I got oh it's it's such nice looking wood and it's going to be about a year before I can start making calls out of it but it's really cool looking wood that and this is a neighbor is. here in the Twin Cities or up north this would be in the I, would, I got the, I was working out of Stillwater just a little bit out of Stillwater okay yeah so this this walnut's got a real dark mocha color. The heartwood does, mm-hmm. but then it's got it's got like a three and a half inch strip of creamy white sapwood, and the border between the heartwood and the sapwood it's a, it's a distinct border. It's not nice. It's it's right there. So I'm going to be able to cut it right there, and I'll be able to make a call where the bottom half of the box call will be cream white. Nice, and then halfway up the um, the soundboard it'll turn to dark mocha and it'll from there on up it'll be dark mocha all the way up so it should be yeah. a pretty sharp looking call yeah that sounds pretty nice so right. then the the base the handle where you hold it that's what would be the different I don't, tone i i don't have handles on on the cost style boxes so the base yeah the actual base it'll be cream white because I'll, I'll cut the base off of that three inch section of cream white 
Mm-hmm. I'll cut the base of it off, and then I'll make the box, the sound body, out of that rest that's remaining, and then I'll take and I'll glue that body into the cream white base, so mm-hmm. it'll all blend in, and then halfway up, that'll be that distinct border between cream right, cream white to um, to mocha mocha. Nice. Right. Yeah, you know, I got a... And then, I... and then the lid, of course, I'll take off of the top side where the cream's not in it so the mocha the little be all, all mocha too so it should be a nice. pretty sharp looking call yeah you know i gotta get back in and and make some calls i've been really busy with work and and life and all that jazz and i just haven't had the time to to, to get in my little gobbler shop and uh start making some calls i have made some but i'm talking you know one of those nights where you just kind of sit there and you sit there for, you know, maybe a couple hours just kind of making calls and goofing around with that stuff. And oh, with the season coming up here, it's about time for me to get in there and uh, start kind of goofing off with uh, some calls, some cuts and stuff like that and mess around with that. And uh... <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, I mean, you better start making some calls because I... Um... My, my 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 call supply from you is empty. I got I got some of the ones you left left me from last year, and I I'm not sure what kind of shape they're in by now. So yeah, and got, you know I got I got my hand out. <laughs> I got my hand out. You know uh, I have been uh, experimenting with uh, some a new prophylactic that's actually been working out great, and I've actually been experimenting uh, with the cuts. Um, on on one of my calls, I don't I don't want to say exactly what it is that I'm doing, but I've been uh, doing something new to that, and uh, it's it's giving me a uh, a wider range in uh, the the vocal capabilities of the call. So uh, yeah, that's some some new stuff for 2024. So, so <clears throat> you're you're in you're in your shop right now, or your your parlor right now, right? Or yep. Your studio is that what you call it? That's right. I'll, how, how late are you allowed to stay in there at night? I have 24-hour access. Sweet. So now here's what I'm going to do now that we're talking about calling. I'm going to make a challenge to you. All right. Right? All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a calling challenge to you. We're right. going to call it the, the calling showdown. All right. Right? So next time... Hopefully we can do this. I mean, how how is your wife about you calling in the house? Would you be able to pull something that off? And it wouldn't have to be a lot. It wouldn't have to be a lot. So so what my idea is is we're gonna pick one call. All right. So it'll be a cackle, it'll be a cut, it'll be some clucking or some pern. We're gonna pick one. All right. And then both of us are gonna have a gonna have a showdown. All right. You're you're gonna do your cackle cut. And I'm going to do mine. All right. And then we'll let the listeners pick who's better. All right. Sounds good. Um, and I can do calling in my house. It just has to depend what time of day that is. Sure. Well, we'll just have to work around it then. <laughs> <laughs> well, see now, see now, in, in, if it was a little warmer out, then we could maybe go outside. Start it outside, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm laying down the gauntlet. All right, I like that. Spot. That's good. That's good. That's gonna get me into the gobbler shop and making the call and testing them because I normally got to build about like ten of them before I'm like, this is the one, you know. Right. right. But so right, uh, 
let's get into this. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, yeah, introduce uh, introduce our guest here. So, uh, who we have on for episode five is uh, a turkey hunter by the name of uh, Kip Strickland, and uh, he is also uh, on Instagram as Kip Strickland, and uh, he is a fantastic turkey hunter. He's not somebody that has a YouTube channel or anything like that, but the guy. He knows how to get himself a turkey, and uh, he is also going after the U.S. Slam, and he's and, and this is really interesting too. So, we had on a prior guest, uh, Gobblenut Jim Bates, and uh, Kip actually years ago, uh, he won or they put in it was some sort of auction at the NWTF. Um, convention and he talks about this in in the podcast but basically the person that auctioned off the hunt it was it was jim gobblenut you know <clears throat> but uh, so that's what kind of sparked him to do the uh the u.s slam and it's it's funny the small world you know but uh yeah so uh kip's going after the u.s slam and i think Oh man, they, he goes over it in the podcast. He he doesn't have uh, very many states left. He's definitely right. almost I think, done. I, think it was, I want to say three. Okay, yeah. That's what I sticks in my head for some reason. Yeah, it was something like that. And uh, he's a very successful turkey hunter. He's he gets it done, you know. So uh, right. And 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 in this interview, we we get Kip, you know, we get him into. You know, a whole range of things like yes. how he chooses areas to go into, you know, mm-hmm. what he what does he do when he gets there? It, we, we run the gambit with him. Yeah, it's very informative, man. It's uh, it's not just, you know, um, not just specifically turkey hunting tactics, but there's some trip planning information in there. Like you were saying, it's actually a very thorough interview with a lot of great information and... Uh, this is this to me is going to be uh, one of the hidden gems of the season, you know. Right. This would be kind of like an unwritten guide of if you were going to be a traveling turkey, how to prepare yourself. Yeah. Or even uh, if you were going to go to the next state over, and it was something that you've never done before, like that, you know, just right. all all the, the the work that kind of goes into planning and prepping and doing all that, finding birds, hunting birds, and. And, and then, you know, the thing is, too, that he, he mentions, you know, with kind of the the public land craze that's kind of going on, uh, Kip's not afraid to knock on doors and hunt some private property either. Yep. He'll knock on doors. Yep. You know. yep. So I think with that said, uh, we're going to go ahead and get into it. All right, man. Why don't you go ahead and uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, you know, let us know. Uh, who you are and where you're from and all that. So name's Kip Strickland, uh, live in central Iowa, uh, work in the commercial tire business. And, uh, I mean, I grew up, uh, with my dad in a duck boat since I was three years old, started turkey hunting when I was five and just kind of been hooked on that stuff ever since. So I've got a wife and three daughters that are gracious enough to let me be gone from home quite a bit every year in the spring and the fall. And, uh, just, you know, ate up with it. You know, I'm an outdoorsman and any chance I got to be outside or, you know, working dogs, training dogs in the summertime or, uh, not being under a roof, I take it. So, I mean, that's kind of that, my, all the men in my family were, uh, 
Maytaggers is what they call them. The Maytag Corporation washer dryer company. They all retired from Maytag in Newton, Iowa. So that's kind of what brought all our family into the central Iowa area and um, kind of been there ever since. Sweet. Sounds good. So I know that currently you're in pursuit of the uh, U.S. Super Slam, which, uh, in my opinion, that's one of the coolest things about turkey hunting is the fact that, you know, a guy can travel the country and even in other countries in pursuit of this bird. Um, what was it exactly that, uh, you know, uh, piqued your interest in pursuing the U.S. Slam? Man, I'd have to probably go back to 2011. So if I go back even further, when I was uh, 14, 15 years old, uh, my parents are divorced. I had a school permit because my mom lived more than a mile from the high school I went to. So I told my dad, I said, hey, I love you. You're my best friend, but I'm going to move in with mom so I can get a school permit so I can drive because he only lived about three blocks from the school. So he was fine with that. Well, my parents to this day don't speak to each other. Um, so I knew that if I told my mom I was going to stay with my dad and didn't tell my dad anything, that neither one of them would ever know that I was running to South Dakota chasing turkeys in the spring on a school permit driving illegally. I already so like where this 14, is going. 15, <laughs> so from, from 14, 15 on, uh, hunting Indian reservations in South Dakota, hunting public land in Nebraska and surrounding states, Missouri, Kansas, uh, Wisconsin, Illinois, you know, we spent, or I and some buddies spent, you know, 20 years, hunting six or seven states every year. We just never expanded outside of what was close for a three-day weekend or a, a two and a half days. And you get to know the land and where birds hang out. And, and really you can run over there and hunt a morning and have success, you know, and Nebraska at the time was three birds. So, you know, three different weekends, you can extend your season type of deal. That's kind of where traveling started. But in 2011, uh, my best friend that I'm doing the U.S. Slam with him and another guy, we went uh, went down to Nashville to the convention, and they auctioned off a five-day all-inclusive hunt in New Mexico. And nobody would bid on the dang thing. And uh, Jim Bates, who's the NWTF uh, state president for the state of New Mexico, or he was at the time, I'm not sure if he still is or not, he was the guy auctioning, like giving up the hunt uh, for auction, and it was at his camp. Um, southwest of Rio Doso in the uh, Lincoln National Forest. So these guys bought the trip for 325 bucks a person. All we had to do was get out there and buy tags. And they didn't want to, they didn't want to make the run. It's a pretty long drive from, from Iowa, Missouri to New Mexico. So they asked me if I wanted to go. I said, of course, I'm in, you know. Um, so in 2011, we went out there. Uh, we all filled our tags in two and a half, three days really enjoyed the mountains, you know, getting in the West, hunting Merriam's, uh, which we had hunted Merriam's in Nebraska, but it's not the same terrain. And, and the birds are just a little different, um, you know, a little thinner, travel a little further. I think it's uh, like true Merriam's. Well, uh, in, in New Mexico, I guess that's kind of, uh, from what I've read, it seems like that's as almost as pure of a Merriam as you're going to get. It sounds like they... Uh, relocated a lot of Miriams from New Mexico to other states. Yeah. I mean, even mountain birds in general, they, they just move, right? Like Nebraska Miriams are hybrids. They, they move, but they don't move like mountain birds move. Um, so there's, there's a difference, but anyhow, it, it, we're driving back, hunt, hunt, hunted Kansas on the way back. 
And, you know, we just kind of got to chit-chatting in the truck on the road and we're like, man, why don't we, we, we didn't even know there was a such thing as a U.S. Super Slam, but we're like, why should, why don't we just try to kill a bird in every state? And so that's kind of where it started. And then it was like 2012 through 2017 was kind of like an extra state a year that we hadn't been to that type of deal. And then, um, you know, some other so, YouTubers and some other guys uh, hit, go ahead. How many states were you generally going to before you, you know started your super slam? Oh, I'd say at least five every season, if every not season. seven or eight. Yeah. And it was more to it was more to just extend the season, right? And then any day I, I don't care if I'm behind the gun or not, any day I can spend in the woods chasing turkeys is a good day for me. So I take a lot of youth hunters, you know, my daughter hunts. So I take her tag along with guys around home that still have tags that aren't maybe the greatest woodsman or turkey hunter just to help them out and mentor them type of deal. Uh, I enjoy hunting with my dad still, who's 73, but still turkey hunts to this day. Um, his cousin, which would be my second cousin, John, they, they've hunted together for years. So we always do Iowa turkey camp together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was all about how much how much spring can I spend listening to gobblers, right? Or chasing turkeys or, or being out in the spring woods. Uh, and then on that trip to New Mexico on the way back, it kind of was like, yeah, let's try this thing. Um, I mean, so we were, we were kind of started and doing the U S super slam before it was cool. Um, I think there's, you know, several guys that had already completed it by 2011, but I didn't, you know, I didn't spend any time researching. It was just kind of a, a, a buddy's deal in the pickup, like, let's do this and do it together type of thing. And that, that went from three guys to two guys, which is now Justin McMillan and I, um, the cool thing about our journey is that he and I have watched each other have success, like either from the same tree or from within eyesight uh, in 90% of our states. And I don't know that anybody else is doing that. Um, so that's really our enjoyment of it is making a memory together that uh, you get to share it with someone, you know, everybody can kind of hit the ground running balls to the wall and uh, slam this thing out four years if they have the time and, and monetary um, means to do it. You know, I could have done it, uh, but I didn't want it to be like that because it's, uh, it means more to me when it's with somebody, uh, and you can share those moments, the successes and the failures, you know, the failures end up making you laugh just as much as the successes do. So it's been really cool to do, to do the majority of it with him. Awesome. Yeah. I know when I uh, spoke with you, uh, I think a couple of years ago, you were mentioning that there's no particular rush for you in getting this done because like you were saying there's some guys that they do just grind it out and one after another um so you were saying so it started 2011 and it's 2023 how many states do you have down now and i know you're getting pretty close to getting done with this too yeah so i think 39 10 to go 10 to go yeah cool uh and you just finished, I think, last season, you kind of wrapped up the Northeast a little bit, right? No, I've still got uh, got the majority of New England done, but I still need Connecticut, Jersey, um, Maryland, Delaware, up in the Northeast. And then I need North and South Carolina, Louisiana, Arizona, Nevada, and Hawaii. Okay, cool. Well, I guess... Uh, do you have a favorite state that you've hunted? Uh, you can't, you can't pin it down to one. I mean, no. you know, there's no place like home. I was blessed with a lot of birds and I've, 
spent, oh, shoot, how many? 38 years hunting in Iowa now, you know, not necessarily running around on my own, but I had a box call and a peanut butter sandwich in my pocket at 10 running around the woods by myself from daylight to dark. You know, my dad had dropped me off at a big chunk of timber and picked me up later. And, um, I just know enough places, nooks and crannies, even on public ground that it's, it's fun to hunt at home. It's fun to have guys that we've met networking through the U S lamb, come up and get their Iowa bird with us. Uh, you know, uh, Derek from the Bayside Legion, you know, he came up, stayed a night in camp with us, you know, great guy. He had success. Uh, I think he hunted maybe a half a day in Iowa and was successful. And, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't go in the woods together cause I had other guys in camp and we were doing our thing too, but you no, know, he came up and borrowed a shower for a day and had a couple beers with us after he killed his bird. And, you know, great guy. We talk every season and have for probably four, four seasons now you know yeah he seems uh obviously i haven't met the guy but just from his videos he seems like a pretty cool guy um uh and paul i know with you you have no intention of doing something like this but i know you've been traveling for like over 30 years i think you started traveling um how many states right. do you have had, uh maybe five. five but it's been you know five for the last 30 years like i said i i got my first drawn tag in minnesota and i didn't fill the tag but that's what hooked me which couldn't get drawn for another three years so i had to go somewhere else and i ended up going i ended up in georgia was it was it georgia the first year or was it the second year arkansas the first year georgia the second year and then after i got to georgia that second year i just kept going back there it was was such a great area to hunt in and i got i got pretty acquainted with the park ranger where i was staying made, made a pretty good friend with him and i'd been there for like 10 years in a row it'd be my first trip of the spring and i'd i go down there and hang out for two to three weeks and chase turkeys around nice. and then it was then it would be missouri missouri and minnesota if i got drawn in minnesota and now it's it's expanded to um wisconsin now Mississippi, and and then in Ar Arkansas, yep. Right on. Do you have any particular state that you feel was the hardest? And and is that, you know, because I guess there's always, there's certain people that think they got the hardest turkeys, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean, I think if you're, if you're from there and you're a turkey hunter, you learn your own birds, right? Like a guy that lives in Mississippi is going to be more successful killing Mississippi gobblers than I'm going to be killing Mississippi gobblers, unless I'm with that guy. Uh, you put the two of us together where he knows how his birds act and the terrain and where they roam and, and then my woodsmanship and my skill set. then, you know, that's a pretty, uh, pretty enjoyable combination. Right. Um, I, I struggled in Arkansas for sure. And I don't know that it's because the turkeys were tough. It's just, there's not a lot of turkeys anymore. Um, I made three trips to Arkansas. One was years ago, uh, went there with a buddy, hunted on a, a reservoir, heard one gobble in four days, uh, saw the bird once, but he caught me with my gun laying across my lap at 15 yards and I never saw him again. Um, the second trip, uh, I only spent two, two days. I was coming from Texas and Oklahoma on my way to Indiana and Justin, my best friend was in Arkansas 
he had killed a bird opening day and he was on another gobbler on a property that was 800 acres and should have had five gobblers had one uh, we got really close but just didn't seal the deal and i needed to be in indiana by opening day so that was the second trip to arkansas and then the third trip uh ended up second day in got on a group of four gobblers four two-year-olds that were alone and they come to us right off the roost states that don't have a giant population of birds are, are obviously going to be tougher um some terrain is tougher than others you know if i had to pick a state that right now i would say is the hardest that i've hunted um and not had success uh, would be louisiana um didn't go into it with a ton of information or a ton of time um but i think there's you know there's success to be had there but i didn't have what i needed that 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 trip and same deal i heard one one bird gobble four times in three yeah. days uh, and he got off property before i could get to him so um that's that's to me that's probably been the toughest if i had to name one um you know i've had some days with weather or wind or or whatever where it's just you know it seems like a turkey doesn't exist right we've all had those days but um i think the more knowledgeable you become as a woodsman and as a map reader uh analyzing topo and habitat you know i think you can create your own success regardless um you know i'm looking for one bird right like you know it's if you take a party of five guys on a turkey hunt for three days that's a totally different scenario than one guy looking for one bird um right. i've just gotten to a point where i'm old enough now that it you know if you ever take the squeeze of the trigger away i probably wouldn't turkey hunt but it's not about the kill anymore uh for me you know i don't mind not having success because it just makes it that much more rewarding the next time uh i've gotten to a point where i enjoy watching somebody else you know get the shakes and breathing hard and you know i enjoy that just as much as i do behind, being behind the gun myself um, that's my dad that's my dad when i take my dad hunting he's he's 78 and i haven't got him into the woods since he's got covid in 21 kind of dragging around he, he doesn't get around quite as well didn't get around very well to begin with and hopefully i can he's he's doing a little better now hopefully i can talk him back into the woods yeah and he, yeah. he he gets he gets the excited he gets he gets all shook up shooting jakes when there's a jake and a, a gobbler walking in and he'll he'll pick the jake out and shoot it because he didn't know the other one was a gobbler yeah you know no, my dad he he's, fired up. he's been hunting him a long time and he's still the first sob that walks by with a beard i'm shooting you know. <laughs> That's yeah, just his, his mentality he uh but he gets yeah he gets ate up i can remember a hunt that's several years ago now there was uh him and our cousin a buddy of mine from missouri and and me and he was the my dad was the only one left with a tag and it was the second day of iowa's first season uh so three of us tagged out opening day and dad had a tag and i was on a bird we went back there and the bird pitches down at like 60 and you know he sh I, I bought him a browning maxis when they came out and he's shooting that gun and you know the bird's going to slowly work its way all the way to us instead he pulls the trigger at like 55 misses mm -hmm. the bird the bird just kind of jumps and stands there i'm like shoot him again well he wasn't used to the maxis because he shot an 870 wingmaster his whole life i look up you know he's he's about five yards ahead of me and he's trying to pump the gun he got so excited he forgot he was shooting an autoloader so he ended up killing the bird but but uh he could have let it come to 20 instead of trying it at 55 yeah. but it's good i'm glad it's still you know, I think if we ever lose that, it it wouldn't be the same. 
Um, do you still uh, hunt Iowa every season? Is there times you skip it? Uh, no, I've never skipped okay. it. Um, you know, like I said earlier, there's no place like home, you know. Um, there's been a few years out of the last 30 that I haven't filled two tags in Iowa. Um, so I was set up, if you, if you haven't hunted okay. Iowa, we have four seasons. The first season is four days, starts on a Monday. Second season's five, third season's six or seven days, and then fourth season's 19 days. So as a resident, we can get two gun tags. Um, one tag has to be first or second or third, and your second tag is fourth, or you can get two tags for fourth. Um, so my dad and my cousin and I, we hunt first season every year, the three of us. Once in a while, there's a guy in into camp from out of town or whatever. Um, so I always hunt first season that Monday, opening day, as long as my dad can go hunt in the turkey woods, I'll be there. Um, I have no desire to miss that. Uh, those, you know, those times become short when they get to the age they're at. And sooner or later, that time is over and I'm not going to miss it. So, uh, and then before I, I enjoy fourth season in Iowa because I can slip out to a lot of places within 10, 15 minutes of my house. I can hunt a specific bird, which I really enjoy. That's already been pressured and it's more of a challenge. You know, I may go listen to that bird three mornings in a row, you know, on the roost and for two hours on the ground. And then the fourth day when the weather's right or the positioning's right or whatever, that's the day I'll actually go in the woods and hunt it, you know. So fourth season in Iowa gives me time to, to pick a specific bird and, and make it a, a hunt that, you know, I remember um, and a bird I remember. So, uh, but there has been a few years with travel that, you know, I just don't get a chance to get out fourth season in Iowa because I'm on the road. Yeah. So, yeah. That's mainly why I was asking because if it's a state you already have checked off, I imagine uh, it, you know, making time to hunt that might get in the way of uh, maybe another state and when they open or, or when you would like to be there. Um, so, yeah, that's why I kind of had that question about you. Uh, if you still did Iowa or if you, or if you would skip it. No, no. And I, and I still hunt other states every season that I've already killed in, um, you know, Nebraska, Wyoming, like a lot of those states, you know, we try to make it a point to get out West every year. And the only thing we've got left out West is Nevada and Arizona, you know, or Hawaii, you know, in Hawaii, if you want to count that. I hear, uh, Nevada and Arizona are, are tough states. Uh, yeah, stuff to get into. Um, I think if you get in there, it's not, not overly tough to get on a bird and kill him. Um, but I think Nevada, don't quote me on this, but I think Nevada gives five non-resident tags annually for public ground. Right. Um, so I think there's another avenue that uh, I won't bring up, but I think there's there's some other ways to get into Nevada that I've explored a little, but I haven't gotten real serious about. And then Arizona's tough too. you got to draw a tag there. Um, Justin, the guy I travel with, he's been trying to draw a tag uh, for Goulds in Arizona for I don't quote me on this either, but 12 or 13 years. Yeah, I saw, uh, I think a Doc Weddle, he made a post that I think he's been putting in for about 12 years for the Goulds <laughs> in Arizona. So when you guys are going on these trips um, out of state and all that stuff, are you guys driving? Are you guys flying? Do you guys camp? Do you get hotels? What what seems to be your, your, your preferred uh, method? Uh, I think... D, all of the above, right? So uh, you name it, we've done it. Um, you know, I kind of like a shower 
every at least every couple of days. Um, a lot of times we're on the move so much that you know camping isn't feasible. Dragging a trailer across the country isn't feasible. Um, I've got a pickup, but I don't have a, a long enough pickup bed to to put a topper on and do the the Dave Owen setup or set up shop uh, in the in the truck. So we we get rooms a lot. You know we shop around. You know we're not really concerned with the price, but at the time you would take a camper or set up a full blown turkey camp. You know, you both go out, you get you get lucky, and you can both get on a bird and you kill one. It takes you longer to tear down camp and move than and set up camp than it did to hunt, right? So, we we try to stay as mobile as possible, especially if we're in an area where an OTC tag is is easy to get. Like you get in the Northeast, it's so quick to get from one state to the next. You know, you don't really want to set up shop anywhere. Um, kind of looking forward to being done with a slam so that we can pick an area that's you know, close to a couple surrounding states and go actually set up camp and hunt the morning. And if, if the wind blows, hey, we'll go fish and we'll grill some steaks or put something on the smoker and, and relax a little bit. Um, you know, there's a there's an immense amount of stress that goes into the thing that people don't realize. And, you know, people people joke with me all the time. They're like, well, you're on vacation and you're hunting. How can that be stressful? But they don't see all the behind the scenes planning and, you know, the internet scouting or calling biologists on the phone and, and, you know, networking with other people and, and digging into the aerials and maps and access roads and, you know, you name it, researching populations and, and looking up data. Like there's a lot that goes into it, trying to, trying to coincide season dates and prime times and, and all that jazz is, is time consuming. You know, as soon as I'm done hunting ducks in, in January uh, and sometimes even earlier, depending on when draws are for certain States, you know, that stuff's already started the entire month of, February is all research, you know, and it's literally hours every evening. So getting in, getting into your research and stuff when when you start targeting a new a new state, you know, just in general, are there certain features that you're looking for? Say, in, say you're using Onyx maps or something like that, or are there certain land features or something that you're attracted to that you prefer to hunt, or are you just uh, you know do yeah, you check? So- uh, before, I guess my, it's not the same for everywhere, but kind of my habit is before I would go to Onyx and start even looking at an aerial, I'm going to research any state data that's published, you know, uh, success rates by county, right. ag sold by county, you know, a lot of that stuff, because that, that not only tells you where you might want to go, but it also tells you where you might not want to go, right? If that county kills the most birds, but it also sold twice as many tags as another county, probably don't want to go there. There's going to be a lot of pressure, you know? So I'm not necessarily looking for the best County or two or three. I'm looking for something that's maybe at the bottom of the top 10, you know, then it's not getting as much pressure, but there's still enough birds there that I ought to be able to find one. Um, Justin and I kind of went to a deal three, four years ago that, you know, we're not trying to fill every tag we can buy in a state. We're trying to kill one bird per state, even if we've already hunted that state, because I just don't believe in taking any more than that out of the population. I mean, there's a lot of States that are struggling nowadays and, and, uh, you know, even if you're allowed three tags, doesn't mean you need to take three birds. You know, some of that, I think my personal opinion is that's greedy, um, especially with the, the population issues we got going on in a lot of a lot of states. Um, but then once I look, you know, once I kind of figure out an area of the state or a county, then I'll make some phone calls. I'll try to get a hold of a wildlife biologist that specifies in upland game. Um, usually they know what they're talking about. Sometimes they don't. Um, if it's just a, if it's just a wildlife biologist, but he doesn't specialize in upland game, 
you're probably not going to get a lot of useful information. Uh, a lot of the information you get from those guys ends up being where they see fall flocks, same as you get from landowners. Oh, I got turkeys all over. There's 40 of them out back all the time. Well, yeah, they're flocked up in the winter and their winter range may not be the same as a summer range. And you're seeing them in the fall. That's why you think you've got a ton of turkeys, but come springtime, you may not hear a turkey gobble where they see 40 of them, you know, six months prior. So, um, and then once I get through that, you know, by then I've got enough experience and knowledge and background that I'm, I'm kind of starting to put the pieces together on what I'm thinking. And then I'll start digging into maps and, you know, how far can I get off the roads? You know, how big is the area? Can I get away from people? Sometimes you key in on small areas because those areas get overlooked from people. You know, something that's 40 or 60 acres may have a gobbler on it or right on the neighbor where you can call them across the property line and everybody overlooks it, you know. Um, so that, that's kind of how the research starts. Um, and, and now we're far enough along and we've made enough friends across the country that a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of it is, hey, let's go join a buddy. You know, I've got a, a good buddy, Andrew Noble, lives in New York. Um, great guy, really involved with the NWTF. Uh, he's got a Boykin that he, he um, has a, runs a dog in the fall to hunt turkeys. Like he's just ate up with it just like we are. And so he's hunted a lot of, of New England, right? He's got, and he's got friends all over up there. So we, we've been fortunate to have a lot of help too, where we didn't have to dig in like that in February. But, you know, if you're going out West, big country, you know, you got to pick a few areas that are probably an hour, hour and a half, two hours apart. Um, and then if it's, if it's not working in a place, you can't be afraid to pull the plug and, and haul ass, so to speak. Um, so that's kind of how it starts. I don't know if I got off kilter or what no, you're no, asking that was me, good. but, uh, that was real good. No, yeah. no. Just uh, to, to get a little farther, so say you're going, say, say like New Hampshire or whatever, are you going to target a certain, you know, are you hardwoods? Do you prefer hardwoods? Do you mixed egg and woods? Is there something you prefer over the other? Yeah, so New, New Hampshire, we actually hunted just this last spring. Um, not a lot of, not a lot of ag in New Jersey. And, and this, New this, this question isn't just, I just picked New Hampshire out of the, right. out of the air, you know, just. Just yeah, in so general. It's all dependent about the, the terrain and the region and what's available to a bird, right? Like birds like open areas and field edges that they can strut in and also feed in. If there's ag land there surrounded by roosting habitat, roosting cover, um, transition lines, cover breaks, diversity really is what you're after. You know, if you've got creeks and, and upland grasses and, and woods with open floor, and then you've got foliage, you know, nesting habitat, all that stuff, brood rearing habitat, it all factors in, you know, fresh burns are great. So it, it, it kind of depends on the state and the area and what what the turkeys thrive in in that specific area. That's kind of what you're looking for. Um, you know, I know in the southeast, which is considered to be some tough turkey hunting, I think a lot of that's pressure related. Um, matter of fact, there's a lot of, a lot of studies now that are coming up from some guys that are all over social media that, you know, pretty, pretty clear to me that as soon as pressure starts in the woods, gobbling falls off immensely, but like that stuff down there, you're looking at a block that could be 15, 20, 30,000 acres of solid timber. You know, that's a deal where I'm just going to get high and, and open my ears. Right. Like you, you really can't, it's hard to really pick a spot without experience. So boots on the ground helps in something like that. Um, so a lot of that, you know, in, some, in a situation like that, it's what I can pick up by making phone calls, getting online, doing my research. That's going to give me an idea of three or four areas that I might try. 
and then you just got to go get time in the woods, right? Boots on the ground. Right. Um, turkeys, for the most part, if they're not disturbed, are creatures of habit, right? Like, so they're going to they're gonna move the same directions as long as they're not disturbed. They're relatively patternable, even in the spring. So if you can get into an area and you can hear a bird and nobody else is hunting that bird and everything works out, you know, I may shadow that bird. Like I, like I mentioned in Iowa, I may go listen to that bird and, and get a feel for what he's doing for three or four days. You don't necessarily have all that time when you're on the road, but for the first day, day and a half, I may not press in tight to that bird and even call to him until I'm certain, hey, it's this bench or it's this ridge top or it's this valley that he's cutting through. You know, I'm not going to call to that bird until I'm in a spot where I know he's comfortable coming and I know I can kill him. Yeah, that's kind of uh, that's kind of Paul's approach, too. Um, and I and I seem to kind of bring this up almost every every podcast but he's trying to drill that into my head but he's the kind of the same way if he'll take his time and he'll learn a bird and he'll figure out where that bird's gonna go and that's where he likes to go uh i'm the guy that just ruins everything (laughs) but i'll get there paul i'll get there it was kind of leading me to what i was gonna say you know you seem to get a look enjoy getting a little more intimate with your turkey hunting with you know your preference and chasing after certain birds and whatnot you're not so rushed whereas you seem to find out a lot of guys chasing at the, the slam it's i got to get in there and i got to do it now and they're pressuring real hard and and I, and I think it has a lot to do with you know some of the downturns and turkey hunting as far as quality wise is so many people are getting in the woods and they got to have it right now that they're just running through the woods spooking all the birds changing them off their habits and yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a culmination of a lot of things and, and this is one man's opinion, but you've got social media has skyrocketed the last 10 years, 15 years. A lot of people are just chasing the next like, right. In my opinion, like I don't really post anything to Facebook anymore. I'm on Facebook just to network with family, friends. Um, you know, I share stuff about my kids or our business, you know, that I work in, uh, once in a while, a few photos, but like, I know that specifically there's 30, 40 guys that are really like mean something to me that are following me on the U S slam. So I post some, some brief stuff throughout the spring on my Turkey travels. And that's really it. You know, I think, um, whether it's duck hunting, Turkey hunting, deer hunting, it doesn't matter. It's, it's all about, I got to get the next post up. I got to get the next like, you know, I got to look like I'm in quotes, a killer, right? Like I'm past that point in my twenties, it was about quantity. Uh, now it's about quality for me, um, right, wrong, or indifferent. That's just, I, I think most people go through those phases. Um, I know some guys in their twenties that the duck hunt and it's all about quantity. If they're not killing limits of ducks every day, they're not satisfied. You know, I would rather go have three ducks decoy in with a party of three guys perfectly knowing that they worked to a call and they were feet down and then we fooled them and shoot those three ducks then kill 30 ducks at 40 yards of pass shooting them. That's just me, right? So you, you got the culmination of social media. You've got increased pressure um, because of social media and YouTube, in my opinion. Um, the more popular it becomes and the more guys watch, the more guys want to do it. I mean, I've run into more guys the last three seasons traveling to turkey hunt than the last prior to those three seasons, the last 15 years combined. You know, I mean, there's people everywhere now and, and good for them. Right. That's their right. That's their privilege as an American citizen. Go get it done. Right. Um, 
but the pressure to kill, I, I don't understand where a lot of people, where, where that comes from and the pressure to do it as quickly as they're doing it. Um, you know, one of the guys I mentioned prior, he had some, some reasons family related, you know, he's, he was ready to have a baby. So he needed to get it done so that he could focus on being a father. Hey, I, I got the utmost respect for that. Um, if that's your reason and that's your why get it done. Um, me, I've, I've got a wife that's, you know, extremely gracious and, and understands my passion. You know, the day we met, I said, if you can't handle being a widow for, uh, two months in the spring and two months in the fall, you might as well leave now and walk away. Cause I'm pretty sure I'm not going to change. And, you know, we're, uh, 22 years in and married 18 and she's still around and she hasn't kicked me to the curb. So, uh, I get away with a lot more than most married guys. We'll put it that way. Um, they, they, they seem to make, you know, like it's a big deal, but they're probably glad to get rid of us. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was right. actually going to ask you, yeah. um, because I know you, uh, you kind of are a family man. Uh, and I just had, uh, well, my wife and I, we had a boy, he's uh, 16 months now. We got another one on the way. Um, so, I'm kind of trying to learn a little bit of that dynamic of being the new dad and then still trying to kind of operate with the turkey hunting when prior not having any kids, I was definitely out there as, as much as I possibly could. Um, but I seem, and, and last year was kind of okay. I couldn't do very long trips. I had to keep them a little bit shorter, almost kind of like long weekends, but uh, do you got any tips, man? Do you got any tips for for a, a young dad trying to figure that part out? Or is it just is uh, the way I'm seeing it is I feel like things are a little bit tougher when they're younger because they're so hands on. And then as they begin to get older, then I feel like my time will I'll get some of it back. And then, like you were saying with your daughter, you'll get to kind of enjoy some of these things with them. Yeah. So. It will get easier, uh, when they're young, it's tough. Um, you know, I made a lot of deals. Uh, I probably didn't travel near as much when like I've got twins and they're 14 now. Um, when they were toddlers and younger, I didn't travel near as much as I do now to duck hunt or turkey hunt either one. And so since the U S slam kind of picked up for me and is a little more aggressive than it started because of all the popularity, um, and turkey populations, I've probably taken a backseat on the waterfowl side compared to most years. Like normally I'm trying to hunt 45 to 60 days minimum for ducks across, you know, from Saskatchewan to Louisiana and everywhere in between, if I can, um, I'm fortunate enough to be able to work remotely at times. Um, so I can still get stuff done, you know, hunt ducks in the morning for a couple hours, get all my job done in the middle of the day and then go scout at night. So it works well, but, um, I mean, when they're young, really all I can tell you is when it's not hunting season overdo it. Yeah. That's what I'm learning. You know? Yeah. That's what I'm trying to do. And that, that's, you know, I communicate that with my wife. Like, so I'll give you an example. My 14 year old, she's pretty competitive in soccer. They travel all over the country, literally like the first weekend in December, we're in Raleigh, North Carolina. Then we're in Mesa, Arizona. Then we're in Dallas. So I travel with her for soccer. I give up those weekends, even if they are during hunting season. Uh, but she practices four days a week, uh, two hours a night year round other than a Christmas break and a, and a short summer break. Uh, when I'm home and I'm not turkey hunting or duck hunting, I, I drive every night if I have to, so that I can tell my wife and she understands I'm going to be gone and you're going to have to do it when I'm gone. You know, so it's kind of a give and take deal, but, but you got to communicate the give and take, right? You can't just say, Hey, well, I did it all, all summer. 
now it's your turn. I'm out of here. Right? It doesn't work that way. So, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I know this season in particular is going to be a little bit tougher for me, uh, having a newborn uh, and my toddler. So I'm going to have to pretty much just hunt Minnesota and, and Wisconsin, uh, you know, somewhere where I can just drive for a couple hours and again, drive a couple hours back home. Uh, so Iowa, unfortunately, might be uh, out of the picture for me this season, uh, which kind of sucks because uh, there's that bird I was telling you about that I have not patterned pretty good. You want me to go up there and take care of it for you? <laughs> I was going to say I'll have to go down and take care of it for yeah, you. Maybe, maybe Paul and I can hook up up there and you you know, you know, just send us the pen and Paul and I will go handle that. I, I might actually have it. <laughs> that's true he sends me a lot of texts with maps and stuff like that so i'll just have yeah, to go back through our texts and see which maps he's it. talking about i wouldn't mind if you send me a picture of the hooks of that bird because i'm going to assume <laughs> that bird's going to be either three or four this season because yeah. like i don't know the way he was acting that's not a two-year-old but i mean he could have been a a smart two-year-old i would have to guess he was probably a three-year-old uh from the way he was acting uh, and he was kind of hend up until it was around that fourth season. And I started noticing kind of like that late morning was when I would catch him uh, gobbling on a bench. And uh, yeah, I remember you hitting me up about that. Yep. You know, it's hard. It's You can look at the topos and, and kind of make an assessment of what you think is going to happen. But until you're there and visualize things, you don't know what understory looks like, brush, you know, any of that stuff. So. But, hey, I mean, you stuck with it, right? Like, that's the first step, time in the woods. That's right. You know? Yeah. I know a guy who took hunted seven years and never killed a bird, finally killed a bird on his eighth season. Yeah. Um, one thing I did want to bring up, because I know you mentioned, uh, you know, when Paul was kind of asking, going to, new, to a new area, how sometimes it just, like, boots on the ground, and that's kind of the only way you're going to kind of know about a spot sometimes. And I, and I think back to that because I feel like you were saying with uh, social media and the apps and all that stuff, I feel it's very easy now for for a guy to uh, get a spot in mind, kind of do some some research on it a little bit. Uh, but I, there's a lot of guys that they kind of want to show up to an area already kind of knowing that there's birds there. Uh, versus like I think back to, to you know Paul when he started going down to Georgia in the early 90s when there like was no Onyx or online forums or anything like that uh, and I'm sure maybe some of the maps that were available of some of these hunting areas weren't really the the best you know they weren't I take it maybe not satellite maps they were maybe just topo maps right. so USGS yep so yep. it's like a guy had to basically say uh I guess this spot kind of sounds like it'll work out and you just kind of have to get down there and you either figured it out or, or maybe there weren't any birds there and you got to move on to the next spot. But I feel like there was a lot more, uh, trial and error than, uh, than there is now. But, but I think about that for the times that I do go somewhere and there's nothing, <clears throat> I just think that, Oh, well, that's just the way it is. And you just gotta, you know, I feel, uh, slightly removing that instant gratification of knowing where you're going to go that there's going to be birds there which that's a that's a good thing if you could figure that out but i guess let's you know not take away from from the the reality that you can get somewhere and that there are no birds i mean that's why they call it hunting and not killing right that's right for me part of the enjoyment is is doing the research and you know having to work for it 
right? Like the bird, the bird you hunted in Iowa last year, you know, whether it's last season after seven, eight hunts, or it's next year, or it's the year after that, you know, you hunt a certain bird, you know, it's that bird. When that, when that finally comes to fruition, that's far more rewarding than walking in the woods, hearing a bird gobble, setting up, you know, yelping him up to a decoy at 20 steps and shooting him and your hunt's over in 30 minutes for me, right? Like the, the grind, the grinders are the ones that, that, you know, burn forever up here. And that's what's, you know, that's what right. I'm after. Especially for me, the ones that I don't get, because then I'll have up until the rest of the year and until the next season begin, I'll always be thinking, you know, what I could have done wrong. What is he doing? And I'll be playing it over and over and over and over and over in my head till that next season comes and I can get, get back out after him again. Yeah. I mean, when you get to a point where you can let a bird come in within gun range or bow range, whatever, and you make a decision that it didn't go down the way you wanted it to. And you let him walk off to me, you you're a turkey hunter, you know, I think there's, this is of course my opinion, but there, there's guys that dabble in turkey hunting and go out, you know, in their home state a couple of days a year. There's guys that say, yeah, I like to turkey hunt. And then there's, there's the, the real, the real deal, right? Which is the three of us on this call and, and all the guys you see on social media that are ate up with it. You know, I'm by no means the best turkey hunter in the world, but you know, I'm confident in my abilities and, and I'm not afraid to go anywhere sight unseen and, and see what happens. You know, I think a lot of people lack that confidence, but the only way you gain that confidence is to learn and to trial and error, right? You know, it's no different than a lot of things in life. The more you fail, the more you learn. If you're if you're afraid of the failure, you know, you'll never find success. Uh, there's nobody out there that kills birds on a regular basis that didn't fail over and over and over. For sure. I mean, uh, yeah, being in those uh, situations is what teaches you it just gives you that experience of kind of knowing uh, like what chess move to maneuver next when a bird's doing something and maybe it'll work out maybe it won't but maybe from those added experiences maybe you made the right move and and i know it's it's the case that sometimes it isn't always you know the right move the bird's going to do whatever the bird's going to do it's not like there's a formula to it but the added experiences i believe of the failure will let you kind of give you an indicator of what to maybe try next, you know? Right. So now you've got experience in, in all these different states, you know, you, you've hunted, you know, everything but a Goulds is do you, be my Correct. guess. Yeah. So do you hunt, say, in Eastern the same way you'd hunt the Merriams or a Rio? Do you go about them different ways? Um, you know what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this question comes up a lot with a lot of people and, and even Easterns within different areas have their own nuances. Right. Um, but typically Easterns have a, a tighter home range. They don't travel as far. Um, you know, like in Iowa, for example, we've got a pretty healthy Turkey population in the areas I hunt. Um, so it's, for me, it's more of a patience thing and a using the terrain to move because there's a high risk of bumping other birds that you didn't know were there. You know, maybe the bird that's end up, that's not gobbling is just over the crest of a ridge or just over the crest of a field, uh, a green field or something. And, and, uh, if you'd have walked the Creek, you'd have got around him just fine and not bumped him. But if, uh, you're lazy and you walk the field edge in the open where it's easy and 
whatever, you know, you booger those birds up for you or the next guy. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's dependent upon a lot of that. Foliage has a lot to do with, with how much you can move on an Eastern um, out West. Merriams, those birds, they travel exponentially further daily. Um, I think they kind of, I think all birds kind of have their loop. Maybe that's a two-day loop. Maybe it's a three-day loop. But sooner or later, those birds end up back in the same area. I mean, there was a reason they were there to begin with, uh, whether it's food source or roosting habitat or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, so so that observation, I can tell you that trying to chase a Merriam's down is not very often successful. Um, moving on to the next one or using the terrain to to get around him uh, methodically and slowly is a far better option than just, you know, kind of running after him because you're never going to catch him. You know, it's just uh, too far gone. And then with the terrain out West, you know, they slip over a top and down in a valley and make a right-hand turn and you're way behind them because you're slower than they are. He's out of your shot before you even know which way he went. So now what do you do? Right. The bird you could hear, you can't hear, and there's nothing else gobbling. So it's kind I of bad. I have that problem just chasing him on flat land in central Wisconsin. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's kind of a like out west. I typically, you know, I spend more time listening from high ground. And, you know, if I can hear multiple birds in an area that sound like they're gobbling to each other, you know, my my initial thought is use the terrain to slide in amongst those birds between them, because sooner or later, just based on pecking order with birds in general, you know, those birds are probably going to get together. Um, maybe not the boss gobbler that's got the harem. He's going to try to lead them, those hens away. Uh, but the subordinate toms or, you know, the birds that don't have a, a big gaggle of hens, you know, they're going to they're going to usually cross paths at some point. So if you can kind of stay in the wheelhouse, you know, success chances go way up. So when you call to them, are, are you basing, you know, your style of calling based on, are you, as far as would you do it differently for a Merriam's or an Eastern, or do you tend to find that's more pressure related or situation related, you know, depending, doesn't matter if it's a, it's a Rio or a Merriam's or an Eastern. No, I, it doesn't matter. I, I think for me, it's knowing the bird you're hunting. Uh, if it's been pressured, how much it's been pressured. Like when I'm finally in the right spot to sit to a Turkey and call to him, I'm probably just a generalization. I'm going to yelp longer series of yelps and and virtually no cutting as you would cut to an Eastern for a Merriam's. It's more witting. Um, but they, the, the, the yelps seem to be a longer series out West. Um, you know, I might one yelp, two, three note yelps at Eastern's real quiet. Um, <clears throat> again, depending on if the bird's pressured, if it's a private ground bird, I'm probably going to approach the situation a lot differently than a public ground bird. Um, public ground birds, there's times when I don't even use a, a call. I scratch the leaves. Um, so it's it, there, there's a lot of situational stuff to that, Paul, that I can't really give you a dialed-in answer. But Merriam's typically Yelp and Wit, and Eastern's typically Yelp, shorter series, and cut more. Um, so there are some different different vocalizations. It make, makes kind of, kind of sense where the Merriam's would have longer sequences of yelps because of the more open terrain in the, the bigger country. Right. Yeah. To me, like in just, just personal opinion, there's no research behind this whatsoever or, or any fact-based data, but I, I feel like that's the reason a Merriam's 
sounds like he sounds. I feel like that pitch carries further. Um, I've gotten out of the truck and, and heard Merriam's in the tree, and I thought, okay, they're fairly close. I've only got to go a few hundred yards. And a mile and a half later, they sound the same as they did when I got out of the truck. I think that has a lot to do with that pitch frequency, um, probably more on a bird-to-bird -bird level than a human-to-bird level. But uh, I think that's why they sound the way they sound, because that that probably carries and cuts further than a deep, you know, eastern gobble. An eastern sounds more manly, so to speak, when you're within a couple hundred yards of him and he's thundering out gobbles, but I don't think that gobble carries as far as a Merriam's gobble. That's my favorite gobble, man, the eastern gobble. Yeah, just nothing like one in the hardwoods and it just rocks the woods, man, at like 40 yards. <laughs> uh, do you do you have a favorite uh, subspecies you like? You like eastern guy, Merriam's, Rio's, Osceola? You know, I, I enjoy them all. I mean, if I had to pick the least favorite, um, I'm not a Florida guy. I just didn't. Uh, I don't know that I'll ever go back, honestly. Um, my hunt, I hunted till 8.30 one morning, had success. I mean, I was in Florida for 23 hours when I hunted Florida. Um, flew in, rode out an hour and a half from the airport, slept, shot a bird the next morning at 8.30 and was on a plane, headed home at 1 o'clock. So, um, but the warm weather, mosquitoes, um, it's, it's kind of commercialized down there. Turkey hunting is, uh, I just don't have the time to go camp out for a week, two weeks, you know, five days prior to season to scout and then, and then hunt a week to, to be successful on public in Florida. So it's just not my choice. Um, uh, I think they're, uh, they're an aggressive bird. I think that, you know, if, if you had your own place there with, you know, a couple hundred acres of orchard or something where you were uh, not worried about pressure or whatever, and you could just go hunt at your own leisure, I think they'd be a great, you know, a fun bird to hunt. Um, I enjoy Rio's. I enjoy Merriam's and, and Eastern's, you know, if I had to choose, if there was only going to be one left and I had to choose it, I'd say Eastern's probably. Um, but I, I don't know that I have a favorite. For sure. It'd be Eastern's in Iowa, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite terrain to hunt them in? You know, I love being out west. I just love the mountains. Um, I love the challenge physically of hunting out west. Um, we've been been in some stuff where you, you get done with a day and it was a 15 miler and there was a thousands of feet of elevation change and the hike out was three miles straight up. Zero downhill uh, was 70 degrees when you left to, to go to the truck and it's 28 degrees when you get there and you wring your shirt out. I mean, that, that'll, that'll make a man out of you. And I'm not, I'm not being arrogant. I'm just saying, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. Oh, I agree a hundred percent, man. When I went out there, um, and I, I know I sent you a text message about it is, uh, yeah, man, uh, like one day, the, the very first day I had something like, I, I got there like midday and I had something like, almost, like eight or nine miles logged down. And then the very next day I had 15 miles logged down and it's just like, man, like, and you know, I, Paul will joke with me because I'm like trying to hit the gym, you know, I'm trying to get in shape and I'm telling him like, it's to chase these birds, man. I was like, they'll run up and down these ridges fast. And even you, it will, you got to be in great shape just to like, not chase them but try to maneuver around them in that terrain like shoot man and i just think to myself like one an electric bike would be nice or you can hit the gym and just get in really good shape 
I think I think what helps quite a bit in situations like that is being familiar with the area that you're hunting. You yeah. know, and the easy sure. you know yeah. the easy access way to get instead of going up and over, maybe it's around the yeah, point yeah. coming I mean, back guys and ask, stuff like ask, that. Guys ask me for help or or insight or you know, ideas. You know, I tell everybody stay up top, right? Stay high and and work the ridge system instead of going down don't go down until you're ready to sit and call to a bird when you're with you know when you know it's right and he's gonna hopefully come to the gun barrel that's that's when you go down um the situation i was referencing on the the three miles straight up was idaho i think 80 or 90 percent of the state of idaho is public ground um we hunted craig mountain which is a giant area but uh, I talked to a biologist that's an upland game biologist, and he's a turkey hunter. So I, I, I put a lot of faith into what he said, but there's not a lot of access by vehicle, right? So you park at the top or you park at the bottom. And his recommendation was park at the top and go down until you get into birds, and that's the elevation they're at. So that's what we did. And that was three miles straight down. And my opinion, what, what's harder on my body is down than up. Uh, as far as knees, knees and hips, it's harder on my knees going down for that far, that long. And it's not like gradual down. It's, it's steep. Um, once we got to the birds, we were in them. I mean, I killed a bird at 1030 in the morning and, uh, Justin killed his bird at like 430 in the afternoon. And, uh, we left for the truck after taking photos and dressing, field dressing birds at call it 6 PM. I mean, it was after nine o'clock. It took us, you know, three hours and 15 minutes to go up three miles. So it was, it was pretty grueling. I don't know if I could have, I could have done it. I don't know if I wanted to do it another day. If we wouldn't have killed, each killed a bird. I don't know that I'd gone back there. Are you doing things in the off season to keep yourself in shape? Are you going to the gym and working out and stuff like oh, that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Year round. Um, lift weights. I've lifted weights since high school and, and I worked in law enforcement out of high school or from 21 to 30 years old, I worked in law enforcement. Um, so I always stayed in shape for that been you know kind of been a gym rat you know since sports in high school but for turkey hunting it's uh that, that's really why i do it now and then you know just to stay healthy and kind of clean living for my kids i want to be active enough when they're you know adults and i have grandkids to be able to run around with them and take them fishing and hunt and that kind of stuff so my my regimen is is more strength based uh, most of the year and then once we hit like january one I'll start doing stair mill work, uh, weighted vest work, you know, building the cardio because it really it only takes six to eight weeks to build your cardio um, and to peak it. So I try to try to get it peaked mid-March so that I'm feeling good. You know, I try to cut 15, 20 pounds from January to March 15th. Uh, it's just easier to carry a lighter body through the up and down hills and through the woods. Uh, are you doing... Uh mainly kind of the stairs and the elliptical or something like that or are you running like going on a jog yeah a lot of rucking so i i carry a, a frame pack when i go out west actually i haven't used a turkey vest a true turkey vest in six years even hunting in iowa i use frame pack it just works for me um, it's hands-free you know my guns in the pack all my gears in the pack and i can walk hands-free so it's it's just what I choose to do. Um, we've got those little turkey loungers that strapped to the back of our packs. We're probably carrying more weight than we need to be, but because it's distributed through a frame pack onto your hips, it's, it doesn't feel like the, the weight of a turkey vest and the heat of a turkey vest. They're just, 
just not for me anymore. Um, I've got, you know, several turkey vests and, you know, I always think every year, well, I'm going to pull them out to go hunt a bird close to home. I don't want to move all my stuff from one pack to the other, so I just don't do it. But uh, I do a lot of interval training. Um, so a lot of like kettlebell carries um, in intervals. I do a lot of sprint work. I do some running. Um, running is really hard on your body unless you can run like on a trail outdoors in grass or, you know, on a dirt trail. So I, I don't do a ton of running for distance, but I do start with, you know, a mile and a half, work up to six, seven mile runs leading up to spring, but a lot of stair mill with a 40 pound weighted vest on. Um, sometimes I'll even take my pack and my, you know, certain hunting boots to the gym and, and use those on the stair mill too. For sure. I feel like that could be a whole, a whole episode, man, is just discussing the whole, like kind of getting in shape for turkey season for, for, for those guys that want to want to do it that way. Uh, I know there's a lot of guys that will just, you know, sit in a blind on a field edge or whatever. And I guess, you know, you don't got to be in ultra good shape to do that. But if you want to go out West or you're going to be kind of hunting ridges and stuff like that, it's, it's beneficial to kind of get in shape. Yeah. Don't tell them because I like them not to want to go up that 400 foot climb to get to the top. I, I like to have that area for myself. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's about efficiency, right? If there's a bird goblin two ridges over, if I've got to stop every hundred yards and breathe and catch my breath, you know, is he still going to be gobbling by the time I get there? If I can get there quicker, the chances are, I'm, you know, my odds go up in my opinion. That's how I think about it too. Oftentimes by the time I, I get to the spot, the bird's gone already or, or gone enough that it's like, God dang it. Now we got to go on this other journey again. I just got here, you know? Yeah. Um, are you a, uh, a mouth call guy, a box call guy, slate call. What do you like using? Um, probably eighty percent mouth diaphragm, twenty mm-hmm. percent uh, pot call. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of about what I'm using. I always have. I'll have a pot call with me, and most of the time, I got the mouth calls. Um, do you make your own mouth calls, or do you use a certain brand? Who do you like? Um, I've got some of Dave's calls. Um, the calls you sent me, I like. Um, I haven't spent a ton of time with yours. I, I you know, I've blown every one of them. Um, I'll send you some more because uh, I've kind of figured a few stuff out since then. So I'm going to send you some more. Whether I'm a you like them or guy. not, just just play with them. <laughs> send me the ghost cuts. Ghost cuts. Okay, uh, cool. Prior to that, a lot of Woodhaven. Um, early on was Primos. Um, you know, everybody kind of changes things and changes materials and this and that. Um, my calling has come come along over the years so um, going with calls that true turkey hunters are building for a huge variation of sounds not that you can't make those sounds with a, a mass production call but I think guys that blow and calling contests know they get they got an ear for that stuff so when they're building the call it's probably more versatile um, but you can buy the same call the same cut and, and they sound different, right? Like there's some that I put them in my mouth, I use them for two, three minutes and throw them in the garbage can and move on. You know, if they're 12, 15, 20 bucks a piece, it sucks, but they ain't going to work for me. There's no point and I can't return it. So, yeah, right. that's a little bit as to kind of why I started making calls, man, is you're spending. And sometimes it could be the same uh, call maker, but 
you know, he could build the same exact call, make three of them, and there'll be little variations in to how they sound. They won't be exactly the same. But like you're saying, you know, you're spending, you know, anywhere from eight dollars to fifteen bucks on one. It's like shoot, you know, just to buy one and use it for like you were saying a minute or two and realize this ain't this ain't the call. So the beauty of me kind of making my own is being able to kind of mess with it and tweak it to to get it to what I want it to be. And if it doesn't work, you just chuck it, you know? Right. Yeah, I'm kind of a, a creature of habit. If I find two or three that, that I like that have different scenarios in my mind when I'm going to use them, I'll buy eight or ten of that same call, right? So I've always got, got them, right? And I, I'm guilty. I I could be a lot better caller than I am, but I don't I don't put in the time. You know, I blow a call six weeks leading up to turkey season and then through turkey season and I don't, then I put it down, right? Yeah. Uh, same with a duck call. I, I used to blow a duck call every day of my life for years and I've just gotten to a point with kids and work and, and you know, dog training and all that stuff, just too busy. And I just don't think about it anymore like I used to, but it's kind of like riding a bike, you know. It's effective. It's not effective enough to win a contest on a duck call or a turkey call, but it's effective enough to turn birds. So yeah. that's kind of what I'm after. For sure, absolutely. And Paul, you're uh, you're you kind of. I know I made you some ghost cuts, but you kind of like the uh, the V cuts, huh? I like the V cuts. I like to get on my my diaphragms a little bit, and I I like the ghost cut if I'm gonna try calling real super quiet. When I try to get a little bit louder, I I get on them too hard, make them squeal and flip tabs on them and stuff like that. I'm generally not a real soft caller to begin with, so. <laughs> I've kind of, I've changed. I, I used to be aggressive, and less is more with calling, in my opinion. You know, based right. on my successes and travels, uh, the least I can call to a turkey, the better off I am, in my opinion. Right. That's more my, is um, I'm listening and sitting, and then I'm going to wait. And then I'm going to get into my position where I'm pretty sure where I can kill them. And then I'll, and then I'll get on them. I'll, I'll start fairly quiet, but it, it always seems I don't ever have any reaction to the quiet stuff whenever I try to pull quiet stuff on them. And they don't ever respond generally until yeah. I start getting after them. Yeah, I've kind of got to a point where I'm not necessarily trying to listen to gobble. Um, you know, call, call soft in the right situation call soft give it 15 20 minutes if you don't hear steps coming in the leaves you don't hear drumming you know like i'm trying to get tight enough when i sit down and start calling if he starts drumming or he starts coming to me within 10 15 minutes i'll be able to hear him walking in the leaves or i'll be able to hear drumming um so i'm trying to break that you know 80 yard barrier um and if you can hear that movement coming toward you there's nothing else to do just be ready right you know, a lot of guys, especially novice turkey hunters, want to hear a gobble. You know, I love hearing a gobble, don't get me wrong, but I don't want to draw in other hunters. I don't want to draw in more turkeys if I'm going to work that one bird. I don't want, you know, somebody coming in, running him off. Like, we've all probably been in a scenario where another gobbler comes in and runs off a subordinate Tom, and then the, the gobbler that ran him off doesn't come back to you either. Or right? even so, just, just attracting the attention of the local hens to come in and just right. lead them away. Yeah, they'll come in and lead them away too. So it's, you know, it's kind of become a quiet game for me, um, especially on public areas. You know, I don't want, I don't want guys knowing that I'm in there. Um, I don't want the turkey goblin 
letting those guys know the turkey's in there. Um, so I guess I've heard enough gobbles that, you know, I don't need a bird to be hammering at me the whole time he's coming in. Don't get me wrong. Those hunts are a blast and they're fun. Um, and they usually happen, you know, at least once a season uh, or more. But uh, I'm not afraid to not hear one either and only call, you know, yelp three times and scratch the leaves four or five times is good enough for me. Less I can booger up if I'm not on a call, right? For sure. Right. Yeah. For me, being a guy that is newer and likes to call, um, what I am learning is that it, it seems to be that that the more the more you call, and I've heard other guys mention this too, but you can kind of somewhat fool that bird, but the more that you talk, the more that bird starts to learn, like, hold up something's off with this because I start to notice that the responses from that that bird or other birds in the area it just starts to become less and less and maybe maybe I'm overthinking it but but I don't think so you know I've 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 heard it uh used as an example as somebody trying to like impersonate a friend's voice maybe when you first kind of hear it you might be fooled by it but the more that person starts to talk the more you're going to start to to realize that it's not your friend you know so um and I think that's and, and with the birds, you know, I'm sure that they don't know, oh, hey, that's a person. But I think they can connect the experiences of hearing these imitated voices and then encountering a person or getting shot at or something like that. So it's just this uh, um, kind of cause and effect thing from that. But uh, Kip, before I let you go, um, I was curious, are, uh, the slam, are you doing this a lot on uh like, is it a mixture of a public and private? Is it predominantly public land? Um, it's a culmination. Uh, you know, I can't even put a percentage on it because I'm so, so far in. Um, if I don't have a, a networking connection, um, then I'm going to start, you know, obviously focused on public land. But I, I've never been a guy that's afraid to knock on doors. Um and even in states where you think nobody's going to give you permission, we've gotten permission. Um, I think it's just a matter of what kind of rapport you build in a, in a 10, 15 minute conversation with a landowner, you know, whether or not they feel like you're a decent human being or not. Um, a lot of it is appearance, right? So you try to be clean cut and well-spoken when you, when you ask, it, it goes a long way. So, you know, I, I would say it's 50, 50, honestly, private ground versus public. Um, I'm not a public ground Nazi like some guys out there. Um, nothing against those guys that are, but hey, if I, if I can get access to a bird, I don't care what who owns the ground, right? As long as I've got permission to be there and it's legal to kill him where he's at, it doesn't matter if the state owns it, the feds own it, or yeah, yeah, Paul sure. owns it. <laughs> you know? I think I just killed my first turkey on private land last spring. Out of all the all the years I've been hunting, I finally killed one on private land. So I, I don't really, I guess as far as knocking on doors and stuff, a lot of the places I go, there's plenty of turkeys on the public land that I just don't feel the need right. to have to knock on the door. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some states where there's not a there's not a an overabundance of public land. Um, right. And you know, you're driving through the state and you're seeing turkeys. I mean, you know, it's kind of like. Yeah, I can keep going another hour and a half to the public I was headed to, or I can just stop and say, hey, you mind if I hunt? You know, that's kind of where where it's at. You know, in, in a lot of states, 
are huge deer states. Um, if you're knocking on the door to ask to carry a rifle and shoot a deer, it ain't happening. But they don't carry it in the spring. They don't, you know, they're they're usually in a lot of instances they farmers don't care for turkeys because uh, they're in their feed bunks and and putting scat all over top of uh, feed or you know tearing up their cornfields or whatever the case may be. You know, a lot a lot of instances you can kind of kind of see old farmer Joe and his big Smith overall saying, kill them all, you know, and that, that's, I mean, there's some truth to that. I've heard that a lot. So, um, you know, I don't necessarily have a preference, you know, public land out West is totally different than public land in the Midwest or the Southeast. Um, far fewer hunters guys out West think there's a lot of pressure. There's no pressure out West compared to, compared to the Southeast. It's just, it's night and day. I mean, all you've got to do is, drive down to the next gate or around the curve and you've got another block of 10,000 acres. There's nobody on out West, you know, a lot of tracks in the, in the Midwest are, they're small, they're 80, 160 acres. I mean, that's, you know, a guy that's running and gunning can hunt 160 acres in 45 minutes. Yeah. So yeah, it's situational, but uh, my preference is where there's a Turkey that wants to respond to a call and work to the gun barrel, I guess. <laughs> hey, that's a good preference. Um, yeah. Cool, man. Well, so uh, I know I've kept you uh, longer than an hour. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and be kind of letting you go because I know you got that uh, you duck hunt. And, you know, good good luck with that um, over in Nebraska. Yeah, um, so I want to go ahead and kind of plug your Instagram. I know you said uh, you, you kind of just post some pictures on it. But uh, I, I think it is kind of a good way. Uh, at least that's how I've kind of kept up with your with your journey of uh, the U.S. Slam, uh, and that's just uh, Kip Strickland, right? That's the username, just Kip Strickland. Yep, just all lowercase at Kip Strickland. Cool, awesome. All right, Kip. Well, uh, appreciate you taking the time to do this, and uh, we're no gonna let you go, man. You have a good one. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yep. Have Thanks a lot, night. Kip. We'll see you. Thank you for listening to the Off the Roost podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe. You can also follow us on Instagram at Off the Roost Calls and Cooley Creek Custom Calls, as well as on TikTok at Off the Roost Pod. Stay tuned for future episodes where we'll try to keep you informed on the latest in turkey hunting. And try to remember the heritage surrounding the elusive and sometimes mystical animal that is the wild turkey.